Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by my good friend Flag Taylor for a discussion of Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, the 1992 western which won him his first Oscar recognition. He actually won two awards as director and producer. The movie seems somehow to cap the era of the western which had been a sort of dying genre for decades at that point. It's a story about the origin of law in America. It's a very sad western. It's grim, it's dark and almost unrelieved by action. But at the same time, it's a movie set on the 4th of July about, in a sense, the 4th of July, about law in America and independence. So, Flag, thanks for joining me. Give me your own thoughts on Unforgiven. Sure. As you said, it revolves around this character played by Clint Eastwood named William Money. We learn that he is a kind of reformed criminal. He was once a very skilled gunfighter and used that skill for evil purposes. But we learn that he had given up his sinful ways because of his love for his wife. Once we come upon the scene in the film, his wife has been dead for two years. She died of smallpox. And he's now raising his two children alone and trying to live and prosper as a farmer. And it becomes quite obvious that he is not very good at being a farmer. The action of the plot begins, however, in a little town in Wyoming called Big Whiskey. It begins as we see one cowboy cutting the face of a prostitute. He's viciously attacking her with a knife. Her name is Delilah. The prostitutes are angered by this, and they are eager for the cowboys to be punished. And so we meet uh, the main antagonist in the film, Little Bill, who's the sheriff of Big Whiskey, who meets out a punishment, and the prostitutes find this punishment wildly unsatisfactory, and so they decide to collect their funds, and it turns out to be enough money to put out a significant bounty on the head of the two cowboys. So the word is spread about this bounty, and a young boy, who calls himself the Schofield Kid, tracks down William Money, who he has heard about due to William Money's old reputation as this particularly bad man, and he proposes to Money that they hunt down the cowboys and split the reward. Initially, Money says, well, I've left all that behind, and he refuses, but then he quickly seems to have some second thoughts, and he goes in search of his friend, Ned Logan, who's played by Morgan Freeman, and Money convinces Ned to join him, and then they rejoin the boy to find the cowboys and kill them. Now, as you said, the film really is familiar in that it hits on an old Western theme about the relationship between law and justice. In the West, of course, there's no such thing as settled law and custom. And so in most of these Westerns, you see something that's very close to a state of nature where people have to take responsibility for protecting their own rights to life and liberty. I guess you can say that the main antagonist in the film, Little Bill, who's played by Gene Hackman, he's the sheriff in the town of Big Whiskey. He has discovered a way to bring order to the community, and I guess you could say it's a kind of a perfect Hobbesian solution. He and his deputies, I guess you could say, collectively are declared the sovereign, and they are wholly devoted to bringing about peace and order. And the main means through which they bring about this order is a prohibition on all firearms within the city limits of Big Whiskey. And I think initially the film wants to show you to be dissatisfied with the kind of peace and order that has been imposed on Big Whiskey. 
I mean, obviously, there's no reason to think that Little Bill isn't the sheriff. I think he's a duly authorized officer of the law. But somehow we are made to think that his solution, this Hobbesian solution, isn't quite right. And I suppose that comes out in in the punishment that he meets out to the cowboys. Initially, he just wants to whip them. And then when Skinny, who is the uh, brothel owner, says, well, that doesn't really help me because you've disfigured this prostitute who brought me a lot of money. He then says, "Okay, well, I'll force the cowboys to give you a few horses. And so I think initially we are made to react fairly negatively and take the side of the prostitutes. And so we certainly are not at the beginning of the film, I think, on the side of law and justice as it is imposed by Little Bill. However, it's also true that we're not quite on the side, I guess, of money and this Schofield kid, because we are made aware fairly quickly that William Money's past is, in fact, pretty ugly. He was a nasty piece of work, and the Schofield kid is a kind of naive, half-blind person who has no idea really what he's getting into. And so we're also made to think, well, are these really the people who are capable of bringing about justice? The beginning of the film is a little bit unsettling. We're clearly dissatisfied with lots of different characters and dissatisfied with the potential solutions to this problem of justice. Yes, you're right that you start with these characters that are strangely intended to throw you off balance. Little Bill doesn't seem to be the name of Leviathan, but that's who he is. He has achieved what today would be the liberal progressive utopia, absolute gun control, except for the authorities. And the story seems to bear out some of the conservative criticism that you can't say the federal government is crazy, racist, evil, and at the same time wish that only the federal government would have absolute control of violence. And so that's what we see with Little Bill. He has pacified Big Whiskey, which is a junction town. There's a train station there, and that's the only reason this place exists. He thinks that you can decide the worth of human dignity because of this authority he has to bring peace to life. And so if the whore is thought of as a piece of property, then there can be restitution made in relationship to the worth of her work. And you'd think that treating women as whores is itself degrading, but it's also worth considering how degrading it is to reduce people to the worth of their work. Yeah. And that's the calculus that little Bill makes. You can get so many horses, and so as the owner of this contract, you'll be fine. And as for the person herself, Delilah, there is a strange name. She's not really apparently a citizen or a dignified human being with a claim to justice. Justice is only related to property here, the property of which her boss was deprived. And this is where you begin to see that legal as Lil Bill is, and successful as he has been in pacifying the place, you have very serious problems with maintaining human dignity when once you have accepted Leviathan. Right. And this leads, of all things you've never seen in a Western, much less a tragic one, to a revolution of the whores. The outcasts, the people who are not even considered citizens or real human beings, they are the ones who stir up the question of justice. They put a bounty on the heads of the men who hurt that girl Delilah, who cut her face. She's called Delilah because Delilah famously cut Samson's hair. She unmanned the manliest man in the Old Testament. Right. And this is related to her own crime. She laughed at a cowboy because he was not particularly impressive as a man. <laughs> 
and he didn't take it lightly. And so there you see why little Bill is doing what he's doing. Men are violent creatures and they can quickly turn into monsters if they are insulted. And you cannot have the rule of judges like any self-appointed Samson. You need the law. Little Bill is right as far as that goes, and you're also right that what we hear about Bill Money, that he's a murderer of the worst kind, that's exactly why Little Bill is doing what he's doing. Little Bill saw all these gunslingers and wanted one place where they couldn't just show up and start murdering. On the other hand, it seems that it's this murderer who somehow is going to be an agent of justice. So the paradoxes in this story are piled high early. Right. And that makes for great dramatic interest, of course. There's also another telling thing about the limits of the order that Little Bill has been able to impose in that there is no sign in the town of civil society or friendship there are no bonds of trust and affection. Everything is just kept in place through fear. I guess the only bonds of affection that you really see are the bonds between the prostitutes. And yes. they're able to engage in this project together. But other than that, you know, there's no evidence that this community is held together by anything other than the Leviathan Little Bill. Yeah, and you see a sign of his own inadequacy in town. Little Bill is forever trying to finish the house he has been building, and he never finishes it, and it leaks badly. It's mm -hmm. a suggestion about his form of rule and how deficient it is. The another sign is that he encourages a certain cruelty in his deputies who nevertheless laugh at him behind his back. Mm -hmm. They daren't because they're in part of fear as well. But behind his back... And so to round out the Hobbesian version, just like little Bill is a deficient leviathan, his antagonists, Bill Money and this Schofield kid, say something about what's wrong with him. First of all, Bill Money was part of the chaos that made life, as Hobbes tells us, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And nevertheless, he himself has outlived it. He was supposed to be long dead, not to end up an old man. Apparently, if you live by the gun, you mightn't die by the gun. Mm -hmm. The criticism of manly violence and what would ultimately say be military aristocracy is not fully right, the film mm -hmm. intimates. But on the other hand, you have the Schofield kid, who is exactly Hobbes' picture of vainglory. He can't see the world straight, but he thinks the world of himself. He's so full of himself, he's willing to go kill a man to prove the reputation. He has given himself as a killer of men. His right. paradox is that he's a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's what destroys him. That's a weird way to think, but it makes sense. He too has heard the stories about gunslingers and he has realized that they are the only people who are not living in fear. They impose fear on everybody else, so that's what he sets about doing. He has mm -hmm. learned that people are easily scared, actually. And so these two men who shouldn't exist in a Hobbesian world, Bill Money and the Schofield Killed, they come to destroy it, or maybe not destroy it, but certainly rearrange it. There's going to be some changes as to what the content of justice really has to be, what constitutes the core of human life. Little Bill has decided that if you take away people's guns, you have established the minimum requirement for civilization. But as we notice, this place doesn't seem that civilized, that human, or to have much of a future. Mm -hmm. And Little Bill himself doesn't seem to understand human dignity. His attempts at pacification dehumanize people. Yeah, really the only way he knows how to rule is through fear, and he clearly takes pleasure in inducing fear. I mean, I think the central question of the film is about the character, Will Money, who he is and how he's come to make these decisions about how to live his life. 
that's the broad version. I guess the specific version of that question, which I think it's worth talking about, is why he decides to go after the bounty initially. Are we expected to think that this is him just going back to his criminal ways? Is he saying, well, I've tried farming, not very good at it. I kind of enjoyed my own life, however horrific it was. So I'm just going to return to be a criminal. Or is it more of a limited decision that I need some money, I'm not prospering, some of my hogs are dying, right? When we first come upon him, he's trying to separate the sick hogs from the healthy ones. And so is this a more limited mission that he says, okay, I'm going to join this guy and get some money and then I'll be fine. And so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, on that. I think he's limited in two ways. First of all, by necessity, he's a very bad farmer because he's never lived that way. He doesn't have the habits required and maybe the place isn't good for it either. He has not succeeded in making a prosperous home for his children. It's an accident that his wife caught smallpox and died, but his failure as a farmer is essential to who he is. And so he can't provide for his children and he knows his days are numbered. This seems to be a very important thing that spurs him on. Even this venture with the pigs, they're dying on him. And the other thing that limits his options is a certain desire for justice. The story of what happened to the prostitute, Delilah, keeps getting embellished. First by the Schofield kid, then by himself when he retells it to Ned. She gets mutilated worse and worse because it takes worse and worse mutilations, fictional, to persuade people of the justice of the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. People have to be made to believe in it. People have to be sold on the idea. Neither Bill Money nor especially his friend Ned really want to do this. And their reluctance is overcome by a horror story. This is supposed to appeal to their outrage that such an injustice had been done and therefore to ease their conscience about killing for money. Mm -hmm. Now that by itself shows how much these people have changed. They used to kill for money or fun without any prompting. Right. I think you can also add to that. It used to be the case. He was usually, if not always, pretty drunk when he yes. did this. But I, I'm fairly certain that we can describe him as not being at all drunk in any sense. Yeah. And he's so stone he's, cold sober throughout yeah, the action of the movie. He's and doing he, this with eyes open. And he's also a prototype of the reformed American. He always insists that his wife changed him. She made him see the error of his ways and that he's a different man now. He doesn't drink, he doesn't curse, he doesn't let his children curse, he doesn't want any sign of evil or impropriety around him. He's fastidious about it, and it makes you wonder just how honest is that. He also talks about his nightmares, where the evil things he has done return to haunt him. Clearly his past is still part of him somehow, but it's not clear in what way. He's obviously serious about being reformed, he doesn't give in to temptations, and he wants justice to justify his killing. But also his manner has changed. He is more accommodating, friendly, he's clearly a man who has learned about defeat and misery. He's no longer the cruel, violent guy he was when he was constantly drunk. Right. And so there is a strong moral change in him that might make him a fit agent of justice. But it's still the case that you have to wonder, how did these two sides of the same man come out in mm -hmm. somewhat different circumstances? This mysterious wife, of whom we only hear because she's already dead, is both transformative in his life and absent. We do not know what the cause of this change was. 
but it seems the new love of justice in William Money corresponds somehow to the love of a beautiful, good woman in okay. the first part of his life. Yeah, I think that's true. His newfound moderation also comes out in that he refuses the offer from Delilah and the others of, what do they call it? I forget what the word that they use in the film. Yeah, they can have sex for free with the prostitutes, drawing yeah. on the money they're supposed to earn by killing. A freebie or some sort of credit system, right? There's a nice exchange with money and Delilah. He says, well, I can't do it. And she thinks it's on account of her face being disfigured. And he says, oh, no, I didn't mean to suggest that. It's just on account of my wife. And she is touched by that. So. Yeah. And in fact, almost everything erotic has been sapped out of him. This image of a young man, volatile, has a lot of attraction to it, which is why Americans loved Billy the Kid in some way. Mm -hmm. But all of that has been drained from him. There's no more alcohol, there's only nightmares, there's no more sex, you know, even his wife is dead. He's well and truly an old man, but at the same time he has somehow become more ancient. Mm -hmm. He behaves in a wise and loving manner with Delilah and tries to reassure her and to persuade her that he thinks she really is beautiful and that she shouldn't worry about those scars, that he knows that she's a better person than he is, that he did all sorts of bad things. He's the only person in the movie who is willing to put this prostitute or any other prostitute above himself. And that, again, shows a certain change and suggests something very strange about Bill Money and about what the problem is with the kind of law system we have been discussing. He was never quite as evil as his actions made him seem in some crazy way. Nor is he, of course, as saintly as he could seem to Delilah now. But he has resources within himself that come out in different ways, in different circumstances. And he's not easily comprehended within the laws. It's hard to imagine any system of justice where he could fit. Mm -hmm. Some would let him get away with too much. Some would damn him, even unnecessarily. But he's a man of great paradoxes. And the movie uses all of Clint Eastwood's star power to persuade you that he's not reducible to a drunken criminal or to a man of providential justice. Right. I guess this is one of the other main themes of the film that isn't attached to any particular character because all of them have to be confronted with this question about what it really means to kill a person. What is it that makes someone willing to kill a person or make it possible for someone to kill another human being? The most famous line from the film comes from Money near the end when he says, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. But this theme comes out in the other characters too, the Schofield kid who has boasted that he's killed five people already, we learn that as a lie. And after he kills the second cowboy, he just realizes he did not anticipate what that experience would be like. And he says, I'm done, I'm out. Ned Logan realizes after the initial clash with the first cowboy that this game isn't for him anymore. And I think it has something to do with the same thing, that he can't quite face killing another human being. And then, of course, there's the scene with Little Bill and the writer Beauchamp, the biographer, where Little Bill makes a point of how difficult it is to pull the gun and pull the trigger at someone. So just that act, I think, is quite difficult. And I guess I would say money seems to be the only person, ironically, who can comprehend what it means to do such a thing, which is an odd thing for someone who, from what we know about his past, clearly used to treat human life in a kind of cavalier way. Yeah, that's right. 
So this question of taking a life is of course constitutive to justice. Any regime has to play God in this way to decide who lives and who dies in some circumstances. At some point or another the use of force will become inevitable and there's a question about what justifies it and how you can constitute an authority that is both justified and efficient. Bill Money is the only guy who kills stone cold sober on purpose and for reasons that seem to him fairly good and would seem to us fairly good too, although perhaps not as convincing. And so he's obviously overcome the natural reluctance we have to do violence. And this is very important for the question of power. Little Bill does violence twice, but he's a torturer rather than a murderer. And obviously his interest in violence is scaring the daylights out of other people. Not primarily criminals, but honest citizens. He loves to shock people by his willingness to perpetrate violence by his superiority to them in that he does easily what they find forbidden and forbidding. He will cross lines that they wouldn't. And this fact that he is terrible in their eyes seems to be the main thing that makes him feel good about himself. His idea is a rationalist view of justice and of violence. He explains gunfighting in rationalist terms as well, yeah. called game theory today or something like that. But that doesn't account at all for the pleasure he takes in humiliating other people, in myth-busting he engages in that, as of course we do nowadays as democratic scientists, we love to bust myths. And for all that, he kills a man by accident. He ends up killing Ned and thus bringing wrath on his town without intending it. Turns out right. he's not in control in the way that he claimed he was. Yeah, and the contrast with money is clear, too, in the scene where they initially come upon the cowboys as they're trying to rope a calf. Ned starts to try to kill the cowboy, but can't, and money takes over, and after a few misses, money hits him. But after he hits him, you have that interesting scene where the cowboy who was shot wants water, and none of his friends are willing to try to give him water. And so Money shouts, you know, I'm not going to shoot you. Give the poor guy some water. And so Money is not on any kind of vengeful rampage, right? He doesn't take pleasure in this like Little Bill does, so much so that he announces to them that I've done what I came to do. Go give the guy a canteen so he can die in relative peace. Yeah, that's I think that contrast is pretty striking. Yes, that's a very strange moment of willingness to kill combined with mercy that again shows very well the contradictions in Bill Money's character and again suggests maybe he is what we want out of justice. And at the same time, this is one of a few moments that shows that there are a bunch of people who go around with guns who aren't really men. The Schofield killed is obviously one of these cases, and in that scene he's continuously asking, did you kill him, did you shoot him, did you get him? Because he's narrow-sighted, he can't see, he literally can't see the very important thing that's happening. Right. And uh, then he actually kills a guy, and he's surprised by what he's done as the guy he's killed, and you see that he goes around with a gun but has no idea what that is, mm -hmm. what this terrible power is about and wants to run away and disown it, and he's clearly going to be haunted and marked by it for the rest of his life. 
Then there are these cowboys who go around with weaponry, but clearly they're also cowards. And then there are the deputies of Little Bill, who are excited to see him triumph over the people he chooses to beat up. He beats up three people in the movie. He's always got an audience when he's doing it. And they seem to be enjoying this spectator cruelty as much as he enjoys the perpetrator cruelty. But they also turn out to be cowards. So the movie concentrates from something like who's willing to kill, who's willing to go around with a gun, who's willing to intimidate or to be violent, to who are the real men here. And this gradual whittling leads to this confrontation between two men, the only who dare death, Bill Money and Little Bill. But of course, there are semi-finals, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, Little Bill confronts in the middle of Big Whiskey this pretended English gentleman, if not aristocrat, the yeah. Duke of Death, English Bob. There you see a confrontation of America and the pre-American world. So how do you think about that episode? Well, I think initially it's important because it brings out what you've already talked about, which is just the really, really dark side of Little Bill and his joy in torturing this guy. You know, there's no sense that English Bob be given the opportunity to defend himself. I mean, it's really just... There are six guns trained on this guy's head. They disarm him. And then Little Bill just kicks the living you-know-what out of him. Maybe not within death, but quite badly. And he takes joy in it. And he takes joy in putting him in the lockup and talking about his cowardice to the writer's face. If we weren't already dissatisfied by the kind of order that is placed in Big Whiskey and the kind of man that Little Bill is, we are at that point. But I also think that there are some um, conversations on the train coming into town that are important. This is right after President Garfield is assassinated. And English Bob says, well, this is why you need a king, a monarch, right? You need reverence and awe. People in England would not dare assassinate a king. And you poor saps in America have a president. So, of course, you're going to have violence run amok. And I think initially it's kind of funny and we laugh at it and we sort of laugh at it retrospectively as soon as this English aristocrat gets beat up by, you know, the Americans. But then if you spin out that speech from what you see the rest of the movie, it turns out to be the case that English Bob was onto something, that if there isn't any reverence and awe, that's yet another restraint that's just absent. And so I think the movie actually is, in a weird way, is (laughs) pro-monarchy, pro-aristocracy. Yeah, so at some level this is brought out in the writer. English Bob has this silly little writer running after him who does pulp books and who obviously is very excited being around powerful men, so much so that he betrays his American faith. English Bob mocks the death of Lincoln. He's uh, just a guy. They shot him. And now there's President Garfield. And it's 4th of July. He's mocking America on the 4th of July. We're going to have a redo of the American Revolution here. (laughs) The English are going to have to have their asses handed to themselves all over again. This writer quickly abandons English Bob for an American version of manliness with Little Bill. Because Little Bill won. There you see something that's dangerous in action movies and this kind of storytelling that's been with us since Homer and is now a virtual reality computer game waiting to happen. The worship of success and this strange attraction to the power of evil. We learn immediately that there's nothing about the romance of an English aristocrat. 
It's all about the power to intimidate other people. Mm -hmm. That's what his stories are selling. And that's what he's giving his audience. People are tickled, titillated by evil. And the fact that we, as an audience, see all sorts of things that this writer doesn't and are made to laugh at him is Clint Eastwood's criticism of this kind of storytelling, where you don't understand what death really means and what killing involves in politics and how it defines being human. So this writer first hears the romantic stories of gunfighters who have it out over women, and that's the old world. In the old world, you could kill for the honor of a woman. It's what Vronsky wants to start a duel over in Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. It's what Achilles almost kills Agamemnon over in the Iliad, a woman. And so also here with the prostitute Delilah and in the stories about English Bob, who turns out not to have been a Homeric hero, but rather a traduced man. Mm -hmm. And he killed in a very despicable way, actually. He killed a defenseless man. And that's the Little Bill version of history, that the old world, the aristocratic world, was full of lies. They were neither competent warriors, nor were they honorable men. And this is what he seems to think justifies his cruelty and his contempt for human beings. Of course, he's also aware that there's the possibility that some of them really were hell on earth that they weren't fake like English Bob. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Little Bill's idea that you don't really need reverence in politics, you don't really need sacred limits, is based on his rationalism of violence. Right. He's got the men, he's got the guns. But it turns out that there are things that you can do that lead people to violence and they don't care anymore. That right. there are men who really do not fear death and who have the competence to bring death with them. And yeah, and that's sort of English Bob's revenge when Little Bill is killed at the end, right? Without restraint and reverence, this kind of power and willingness to kill can be aimed on you. And so even though English Bob loses his individual duel with Little Bill, it turns out English Bob was right, that if you don't really have self-rule, and in a way you don't have that in Big Whiskey because people aren't allowed to have their own weapons, there's no self-rule, then you better have reverence and restraint. Otherwise, you might be on the killing list at some point, right? Yeah. Little Bill seems to have enough of the old world pride, this aristocratic manliness, to not consider that you can intimidate people all you want, but someday somebody might shoot you in the back. Yeah. This is suggested when one of his deputies walks up on him and he's on a ladder trying to fix his unfixable house. He's a bad architect just as he's a bad politician. And the guy scares him. Bill says, don't sneak up on me. Well, how do you think you can keep terrorizing people and they'll never sneak up on you to get revenge? What must your opinion of people really be to yeah. think that you can terrorize them, that they're like cattle? But cattle might not fight back. Men will. And so, because of his cruelties, first to English Bob and then to Ned, he stumbles into self-destruction. There you see the abuse of power that a system based on order and has no law in it involves. There is no law about human life, there is only little Bill keeping order by his own valuations, often monetary, of human life. What do you think about money's relationship with the Schofield kid? This is the one thing that's puzzling to me, I'm not quite sure... By the end, it turns into, I guess you could say, a kind of mentoring relationship. I mean, initially, the relationship is in the other direction. The Schofield kid is inducing money to kind of recapture his courage. But then it's pretty clear, once we learn that the Schofield kid is near blind, that he's really not capable. 
I guess I'm wondering why does money even bother including the Schofield kid in this project? Yeah, you're right. This is very important because Bill Money didn't really need him at all. The kid just told him about the thing. If he decided to pursue it, he had Ned, whom he does indeed call on and enlist against Ned's better judgments. And they go off to do this job, and it's a two-man job. But he goes after this kid. The kid must remind him of himself to an extent. That's what he means when he says, I'm not like that anymore. He used to be that guy, and maybe he hopes that there's another way for this kid. That you don't have to be a killer that maybe justice could set limits to what you're doing, and at the same time being paid for doing justice could be enough. You wouldn't have to go crazy, get drunk, and saw chaos in your path. And he takes the kid at his word much more than his friend Ned does, who is far more of a pacifist, but far more bellicose with the kid. And he's the one who discovers the kid's blindness, angers the kid into drawing his gun on him at least once, and chastises Bill Money for not being harder on the kid. From Ned's point of view, the kid is all walk and no talk. But Money seems to see himself to an extent in that kid and to look for some kind of redemption there. The weird thing about the relationship is that it reproduces his own failure. The kid can only learn the gravity of what he has done when it is too late and he will be forever haunted by what he has done. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't affect the justice of the claim. Perhaps that cowboy needed killing for his violence and his impunity. That was the particular cowboy who actually inflicted the wounds on Delilah. Yes, exactly. The guy was cruel, violent, thoughtless, and absolutely unrepentant. He paid the penalty because it was exacted under threat of violence. He had no understanding of what he had done. Perhaps he did need killing. And perhaps the kid who had never killed anybody and seems to have wanted to make his name could have done it for the right reasons and turned into a sheriff, which the West badly needed. But like money in his youth, he was spirited, violent, and arrogant. He's what Hobbes warns us about. Men who are so obsessed with their reputation, who are so obsessed at taking insult when people don't treat them as they think they deserve, that they become violent. The portrayal of the boy shows that this is perfectly possible in somebody who's never actually done the things he says, whose reputation is all lies. But we do know about the kid from his own confession in a moment when he has no reason to lie anymore, that he just beat up a guy who pulled a gun on him. And we see him kill... He is not entirely a coward. He is to some extent able to use violence in defense of himself. And his relationship with money nevertheless is a failure. He cannot be a son, he cannot be a student, because he does not have that experience. The terrible character of killing and dying. Mm -hmm. What it reveals about being human. To begin with, he knows nothing, and at the end, what he has learned is to hide from this experience and to try to get rid of it. He wants to be an unknown person now. His desire for reputation has been completely wiped out. Mm -hmm. But with it, any possibility of manliness seems to have disappeared too. And there you see another problem with being peaceable. If terror is the price of peace, then there is no more possibility of manliness. Of course, we should talk about the ultimate scene in the film, Money makes his way into the town, and he enters the saloon in the great killing scene, right? And initially, he kills the saloon keeper, which is a little bit unexpected. And uh, Little Bill says, you killed an unarmed man. 
And he says, well, he should have armed himself if he was going to put my friend out on display in his saloon. And, <laughs> and of course, then he turns his sights on Little Bill. His gun misfires. He throws the gun at Little Bill. It's quick enough to pull out a pistol and shoot him. Other people take shots at money, but he's able to kill a few other people too. And then he announces anyone who doesn't want to die should leave. So eventually it's just him in the saloon with a drink. And he hears Little Bill cock his gun, who hasn't quite expired yet. And he steps on his wrist. And Little Bill says, I don't deserve to die like this. And then we get the famous line from Money, deserves got nothing to do with it. He leaves and announces that he'll kill anyone and their families and their children. He tries to come after him. And then at the end of the film, in the text, we learn that Money subsequently takes his family to San Francisco and becomes a purveyor of dry goods, a small business owner living a life of decency and commerce. Yeah. So there's a lot to digest. I guess I'm interested in, obviously, the line, deserve's got nothing to do with it. It's a little bit puzzling, right, on its face, because deserve has everything to do with it. That's why Money goes back into saloon to kill Little Bill, because he thinks he deserves to die. And so yeah. we should talk about what that particular line is meant to convey. Yeah. As you pointed out, he first kills the saloon keeper because of what they did to his friend. He goes there and he sees, as he had heard, that his friend's body is on display as a warning to others not to annoy little Bill. For no good reason, they turned a posse into a mob and murdered this guy in an orgy of torture. And here you see a first lesson in the sacred character of law. People who mess with corpses will be murdered. You'd think that there are a lot of more serious crimes in this world, but actually that one is fundamental. If you do not show respect to corpses, we're all mortal, we'll all die one day. What then? Funeral rites are the basis of all law because they insist that after we drop dead we don't turn into food actually, right? I just had lunch, I had meat, that was a dead animal. But we do not do that to our own kind. It is fundamental that we respect the human body and bury it. That's the thing that makes him want to kill somebody. And that shows the first law of nature. And then he turns on little Bill because little Bill is proud that he killed the guy. He's the actual killer. But he only comes second. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you said, he kills little Bill because Bill deserves it. He killed his friend. Of course, there's a problem there. Criminals can have friends too. That doesn't mean you could act on the principle of killing for your friend or revenge or for family revenge. That would lead to perpetual war. That's the sort of thing that Hobbes was worried about and we all are. And it's what we see in the terrifying situations that still happen in this world where civil war wipes out the civil peace and destroys hundreds of thousands of people and ruins the lives of millions. This thing still happens, of course. It's not enough to love your friends or your family in order to install justice. So in that sense, certainly, deserves not the point. But I think what Money says has to be about Lil' Bill personally. They have a conversation where Lil' Bill says, You're Bill Money out of Missouri, who's reputed to have done horrifying things, including to women and children. And Bill Money talks as if he is the angel of death himself. He says, I have killed just about anything that creeps on this earth. And at that point, he embodies a cosmic principle. In that sense, deserve has nothing to do with it. We are all mortal. But it particularly humiliates little Bill who thinks he has installed the permanent peace, who has overcome the condition of man by his own tyranny, and who had beaten up Bill Money before mm -hmm. in the pursuit of this disarmament campaign. 
from the point of view of those kinds of laws, of course, he doesn't deserve what he has got, but he has gotten it in despite of them, which proves how weak they are. Little Bill is an effective tyrant up until he gets the wrong guy angry. Is this line, deserves got nothing to do with it, is he denying that he's an agent of justice? I don't think so. It's not as strong as it seems, except in the particular case of Little Bill. Just like his further assertion, like you said, as he gets out of there, he says, if anybody tries to follow me or shoots at me, I'll kill him, I'll kill his family. This is what is implied in personal vendetta. You have to exterminate a family or a tribe or a nation to have safety, because otherwise their children will come and look for vengeance. And at the same time, he says nobody should ever cut up prostitutes or do anything like that again. There he makes himself seem like the agent of justice. The city has transgressed because they use a tyrant who is willing to trade on the humanity of these women. And they deserve what's coming to them for that. This is divine vengeance. That's too much. Both statements are too strong, if in opposite directions. In mm-hmm. fact, Bill Money is not going to come back and enforce God's justice, just like in the other case, it's not true that he did it for no reason. But he does emphasize different things in different situations because little Bill believes too much in order, and this has right. made him a monster. And so he tells him this has got nothing to do with it, that you are ultimately in control of nothing, which in the case of little Bill is literally true. Because in Bill Money's case, it's not literally true. He has remarkable control over his life and those of others, as it turns out. But he also is aware, unlike little Bill, that luck matters a lot. It's just that it somehow dovetails with character. He says, you know, I'm lucky, that's why I'm not dead. But then again, I've always been lucky when it comes to killing. Right. That's character. It's no longer and, luck. And in a way, too, there's a interesting mirroring of the importance of luck and kind of irrationality of justice, both in the beginning text of the film at the end. We're reminded of the fact that the parents of Money's widow were just always perplexed that their daughter could have chosen to have this criminal as a husband, right? Yes. And so, you know, erotic longing can fix itself on objects that don't make any sense in the same way that killing and revenge can fix itself on objects that seem to be outside the bounds of what makes sense or what's proper. Yep, that's right. And these things are very important. A lot of the teaching about sacred limits, like don't defile corpses, has to do with the fact that you don't want to invite chaos. Don't make people mad with grief whose only recourse is slaughter. And so with the matter of justice, you will need men who are not too far away from doing monstrous things themselves because they have to confront evil. No amount of scientific gunslinging or imposition of order is going to do away with the fact that human beings do unjust things. It's just going to concentrate injustice among the powerful. Right. Little Bill is the only guy who gets to commit injustice in public. He turns the fantasies of many... People love these kinds of stories, still do, into his own private life. He is enacting the dark fantasies of America in the streets with public impunity and to some extent with the support of the public. That's one way to turn order and authority to concentrate injustice and violence, which is way scarier than it first seems. You gradually get to see just how dark Little Bill is, and it takes even more to realize that he's doing it because of his times and his people. He's all-American in this. Just like you have the alternative of cruelty and murder that's non-American in English Bob, his antagonist. And he thinks that because he's beat the English, that makes him pure. 
as right. though there could be no other evil than people who are too proud. Mm -hmm. So that's one danger of rationalism. It will encourage certain kinds of cruelty and justify them at the same time. Respect for sacred limits depends on admitting that you can't control life and events. You want to set certain limits that everybody will accept because it's the only way to deal with the strong passions, the strong love and anger that lead us into catastrophe, but which are also required to install and to maintain justice. In mm -hmm. a world where people no longer feel the need to avenge their dead would pretty soon cease to be civilized if it could be called civilized at all. Now, it seems like we should all be forgiving. We should never wish ill on anyone. And perhaps we should always understand that circumstances put people in a bad situation. But the result of that practically would be to prefer criminals to their victims on principle. But on the other hand, the installment of justice, like you see with Bill Money, little Bill was orderly, but he was not just. Now you do have a principle of justice that acknowledges the human dignity of everyone, including prostitutes. And it is based in fear, like Lil Bill's order, but it's a different character of fear. It's not the terror of the only man who holds a gun. It's sacred fear. It's about the things that you fear in the dark of night. It's about the things that are constitutive to being human, not the will of a specific person, like the emergence of Lil Bill as sheriff. And so there's remarkable depth to Bill Money's strange view of justice, just like, as you mentioned, the fact that some woman fell in love with him. Now, of course, women do sometimes fall in love with incredibly dangerous men because they're so confident, they seem so attractive for that reason. They seem to be fearless when everybody else is obedient. They play the natural master and right. they treat the rest of mankind as natural slaves. That can be very attractive. But it seems like that woman was unusual in that she really was as decent and as good as her parents and society thought she was. She was just able to do something that they never were. Respectable people can't admit that sometimes you have to do unrespectable things for she, love or for justice. Yeah, and that she saw something in money that most people couldn't see, despite the fact that most people would have said, oh, he's beyond the pale, he's an inveterate criminal. Yeah. She turned out to be right about him, that he was capable of moderation and courage and employing lots of virtues that he wasn't able to deploy for whatever reason initially. And her effect on him lasted beyond her own lifetime. She was such a powerful person that she, in a way, reformed him for good, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think we're still meant to be quite pessimistic about Big Whiskey, in part because there are no wives, there are no families. Yes. Um, the only wife that you see living, right, is Ned's wife, the Crow woman, and that's it. And so it's hard to see how a enduring civil society could be built that's not rooted in fear without wives. So that's what's typical of this Western. The only women you see are prostitutes and this Indian woman who doesn't live in a city who is wise and benevolent and moderate. And she has also tamed Ned. Not that Ned was ever as terrible as Bill Money, but he was an associate and guilty of all the things Bill Money did. But he also was tamed by a woman. And that happened like with Bill Money outside the city. Civil society can't even conceive of this. Respectable yeah. people don't see their way to this stuff. And of course, it should never become a principle that, you know, let's try and throw good women at terrible men. That is not what the movie is advertising. <laughs> it's trying to show that we believe in providence for a reason. You're not in control of who's irredeemable. And to some extent, these things are the judgments of people who can't really explain them because circumstance matters so much. 
and the chance meeting of certain natures. Yeah. The movie by no means suggests that any woman who fell in love with Bill Money would have reformed him straight off. No. It insists that it's almost unexplainable, but nevertheless real. And of course, however difficult, examples of such miraculous things do exist. That's the only real reformation we see in the movie. His love of the beautiful turns money into an agent of justice. Mm -hmm. And it might not make him a good father, by the way. It certainly hasn't made him a good farmer. But he does something absolutely invaluable to America. On the other hand, the reformation of Big Whiskey, or the Wild West more broadly at the hands of Little Bill, is short-lived because of his peculiar failures. Everything that shows a bit of greatness in the character of Bill Money is absent, or the opposite, in the character of Lil Bill, who of course is also friendless, which says a lot about him. And it's not clear that Big Whiskey has any future at all. You need the installment of justice precisely so that wives can appear, so yeah. that women can tame men in the way in which Bill Money's wife tamed him and Ned's wife tamed him. Of course, in the city, it would look somewhat different. These are still violent men. But you first need sacred law, and only then is it possible to have a city that's based on law. But it turns out that to have sacred law, you also need something that Bill Money got from his wife, a teaching about morality and providence and sin. He's obviously feeling terribly guilty for what he's done. You know, he loved his wife because she was beautiful and was the only person who treated him like a human being when he was acting like a devil. But at the same time, it's perhaps the fact that his terrors were catching up to him mm -hmm. that made him receptive to a teaching about sin and things that you shouldn't do because they are evil acts, which he has learned. And in as much as he does the evils of murder now, he does them for justice. Part of the suggestion there is that we would want law to disappear into order, justice to exist without punishment, and we are tempted to ignore injustice for that reason. Just like there are the opposite of us in somebody like Bill Money, who exaggerates with the perpetration of injustice and doesn't believe in order much. He is always counted on his luck, precisely because he stands against mankind who stand by order, not by luck. But we need this because of our own inclination, which is to ignore the fact that terrifying men are absolutely necessary to civilization. There are certain cases where only they will do justice because only they really believe that much in the things that Bill Money believes in. Friendship, for example. We start from ordinary decency, which causes us to be shocked at the crimes the cowboys commit against the prostitute. But we might be all right with a system of order that deals with such outrages even without any justice. Bill Money starts in a different place. He starts from friendship and from what he thinks he has learned from his wife. His new mildness, the principles of his reformation. These two starting points would seem to reveal that there is no public passion that serves justice. It is only from private motives that we move to establish justice in public. And in the case of Bill Money, it is only because his friend is under attack that he returns to Big Whiskey and writes the wrongs of Little Bill. Yeah, there's a more respectable kind of fear that money can inspire because he has a kind of self-knowledge about the ultimate limits of justice that is just totally absent in Little Bill, I think. Yeah, and of course this doesn't do away with the fact that Bill Money is a really scary guy and that he really did commit all sorts of terrible deeds. 
Clint Eastwood is taking up the themes of John Ford or Sam Peckinpah about the origin of justice in the West and therefore the American way of life in freedom and he is perhaps even more insistent than Peckinpah who was more insistent than John Ford himself on the violence required. But they were all agreed on this that the men who installed justice were terrifying. Not normal, nice, decent, or people we'd want to befriend, but some of them did have this incredible stature that makes them admirable, if at the same time fearful. And that seems to be necessary because otherwise we would think nowadays we have a system of justice and everything works out and there's never any reason to lose your cool. Just obey the way things are and things will work out. But of course it still is true that every day in America somebody suffers a horrifying injustice. And if that becomes the rule, because people become obedient, then in due time, chaos will come again. Yeah, I think that's right. There's no longing for a kind of natural justice. People can be too satisfied with an order that blinds them to injustice, right? So you see, there's only one character who believes in forgiveness other than Bill Money, and it's the kid Bill Money kills. He comes and brings a horse to the prostitute herself, because he wants to make amends. He is not the perpetrator, but he was complicit. And he wants to give her something of value, but also something he insists he loves. The horse he loves best, and that means most to him, and he gives it freely over and above what he was required to do. Nobody suggested it or prompted it in him, because he wants to make amends for the evil he was part of. And his reward for that is that although Delilah wants to accept it, the other prostitutes stone him and then Bill Money kills him in a really miserable way. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do justice. It's a very troubling moment and again it shows that the things that we set in motion in the quest for justice are terrifying. And they don't end up in the moderate, reasonable way we think we prefer. Just like often, our preference for moderation just means not bothering with somebody else's problems. After all, we tend to understand moderation to include justice in the simple statement, mind your own business. Mm -hmm. The assumption there is that if you do well at your business, you'll be fine. And if everybody does well at their business, then we're all just going to get along. But it turns out that it doesn't quite work that way, that there are people who will have to mind other people's business. And to the extent that these are recognizable types, Ned, Bill Money, Little Bill, and even English Bob, it's worth considering what they say about America and what the tendencies are and when you need a correction in one direction or the other because it seems like there's never going to be a perfect system or there is going to at some point sanction something unholy and then the chaos will start again. Yeah, it's a remarkable film. Um, I had forgotten how good it was. And it's so strange it was Clint Eastwood's last movie and the one that made him an Oscar winner and made him a lot of money because Americans loved it. And it's nevertheless very dark. It has a satisfying end in the sense of morality and justice, but not a happy end. And the more you watch it, the more you appreciate what wisdom Clint Eastwood brought to this and how judiciously he executed it to show you these characters as best he could and not to prejudge the issue or to spare you the drama of confronting all these different claims. 
you of course sympathize with the prostitutes who aren't treated like anything better than cattle, but you're horrified at the stuff they set in motion. Yeah. And you see that little Bill is turning into a monster, but you see that he's completely right that you don't want to start killing even more people. And, yeah, so time's hard to watch, yes. but I think it's done very skillfully, and he never goes overboard with the violence, I don't think. It's always deployed in a sensible manner, you know, you sort of have to face it, but it, you never feel like it gets out of control and asks too much of the viewer, so it's... You know, yeah, it's, and of course, it's got Clint Eastwood directing and starring, and he keeps under control what is an incredibly troubling situation, and it's somehow fairly easy to trust him that he knows where this is going, and he's not playing with your moral involvement in the story. It is a remarkably mature and dignified achievement. Yeah. Well, Flag, I hope we've persuaded people to watch it again, to give it some thought, and to see Clint Eastwood's grandeur and his interest in America. He's just got a movie out recently, the 1517 to Paris, where again he concerns himself with American heroes, with manliness in civic life in America, and the need for men who take risks to protect other people, just like he did with Sully just like he did with American Sniper. And, of course, our own conversation previously was about Gran Torino, where yep. he shows another veteran who does the civic duty that's beyond all others that, again, involves something sacred, a sacrifice to protect. And so clearly this has been on his mind a long time, and he wants to bestow something on his countrymen that will benefit them and last. Yeah. If you want to talk about a way to earn fame, to make your name and have people know your name for the right reasons, Clint Eastwood is an example of that. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. And I hope to uh, talk to you again soon about another film. Yep. We'll certainly do something. As Carl and I are thinking about loving the Jeff Nichols movie about the Supreme Court case, we encourage you to get up to speed on that and we'll deliver another stirring conversation on the all-American director Jeff Nichols still active. Yep. Sounds great. All the best, Flag. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.